Parshat Vayeshev. This is the Parsha where we see Jacob, Yaakov Avinu, beginning his life in Eretz Canaan, in the land of Canaan. I'll begin by reading the first couple of psukim in the Parsha, and we'll use that as a launch pad uh, to discuss exactly what it is that happened and how Yaakov Avinu's life unfolds at this stage. Vayeshev Yaakov Be'eretz Megure Aviv Be'eretz Canaan. Jacob lived in the land of his father's dwelling, in the land of Canaan. Eile toldot Yaakov, Yosef ben Shva Shana, Hayaro et Batson. These are the generations of Jacob. When Joseph was 17 years old, he shepherded with his brothers with the flocks. And he was a lad and was with the sons of Bilhah and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought bad tales about them to their father. So there are a lot of anomalies in these two pesukim. Um, the first is, there's repetition. So it says twice, Be'eretz, Be'eretz, Be'eretz. It's Megure Aviv and Canaan. Um, why do we need to know that he lived in the Eretz Megure Aviv? There's also a differentiation between Vayeshev and Megure. Usually the word that's used in association with the word Megure would be Vayagar. Um, it means that uh, he resided there, but it wasn't a permanent dwelling. Vayeshev seems to indicate that there was a permanence to it. So there's a contradiction there in the first pasuk. Ele toldot Yaakov. These are the children of Yaakov. Does it give us a list of the children? No, it just says Yosef ben Shvaisrei Shana, Hayaro et Echav, etc. So it starts giving the story of Joseph, and we know that story. The story unfolds very unfortunately. Joseph seems to be um, uh, considered an antagonist of his brothers by his brothers, and there's great difficulty in that relationship, which results in them hating him after they hear the dreams. They actually, before they hear the dreams, the dreams just make it worse. Eventually, he's sold to Egypt, and the story unfolds, and I'm sure that uh, you know the story from there. But the beginning of the story is here, and it seems to have nothing to do with Eile Toldot Yaakov. We could have just said, Yosef ben Shvayis We could have introduced the story of Joseph without having the words Eile Toldot Yaakov. There are other anomalies which will come up, some which won't. But these two psukim, which lay the groundwork, which are the foundation of the story of Yaakov, after he returns to the land of Canaan, um, these two psukim are extremely important, full of incredibly um, uh, important information about what was going to happen. And you're going to see that there is a debate. So the first thing that we're going to focus on is a debate as to how to interpret these psukim. Let's first look at the Ibn Ezra. So the Ibn Ezra says, His kir sha'alufei esav yashvu bahar seir, v'yakov yashav be'eretz 
Hanivcheret. So why do we need to mention the fact that Yaakov lived in Eretz Canaan? Because we have just heard how Esav moved to Har Seir. So now, following on from that subject matter, if we're discussing where it is that Esav lived, now we should talk about where it is that Yaakov lived. So he's trying to create an understanding as to why it is we should be discussing Yaakov's place of residence. We know that he returned to Canaan. We're going to see later um, that one of the Mepharshim asks, why even discuss where he lives? If we haven't heard that he's left, clearly he remained where he was when the story unfolded with Esav, right? So Esav met him in Canaan. We didn't hear that Yaakov Avinu left. We heard that Esav left. He went to Harser, to, to Edom. But we didn't hear that Yaakov left. So obviously, I mean, where else was he going to live but in Eretz Canaan, if we haven't heard that he's left? So the Ibn Ezra says that it's just um, a tidier way of presenting the narrative. If we just heard that Esav lives in Harseir, it's appropriate to introduce the next chapter to talk about where his brother Yaakov lived, which is Be'eretz Megure Aviv Be'eretz Canaan. Continues the Ibn Ezra. Ve'Yaakov yashav Be'eretz Hanivcheret, Vahatam Eilet Toldot Yaakov. So why does the pasuk, the second pasuk, begin with the words Eilet Toldot Yaakov? The question, the underlying question being, that actually we don't hear about the children, the descendants of Yaakov, because the Pasuk immediately continues, Yosef ben Shva Esrei Shana, etc. We start talking about Joseph. We don't talk about Yaakov's children. In which case, the introductory words, Eile Toldot Yaakov, don't make much sense. Says the Ibn Ezra, Elu Hamuraot Sher'u Lo Vamikrim Sheba'u Alav. Be, um, be aware, he says, that the world t- word toldot doesn't only mean children and descendants. It also is a euphemism for events and things that took place. The stories that occurred to Yaakov are referred to using this particular word toldot. Sometimes it means children, says the Ibn Ezra, and on other occasions, like in this case, it means stories, it means events, because we're about to hear the story of Joseph, the events that took place that divided him from his brothers that ultimately resulted in his being sold into slavery. So therefore, the way that particular series of incidents is introduced in the Torah is by using the words these are the stories of what happened to Yaakov after he moved back to the land of Canaan. I'm now going to share with you a startling Rashbam. Rashbam was the grandson of Rashi, as he makes very clear in this particular passage at the beginning of Parshat Vayeshev. And the reason why I am sharing this passage with you is because it is one of the rare passages in the Rashbam, and in fact in any medieval commentary, where 
the author, Rashbam, shares a very personal anecdote, a a story that occurred between him and his grandfather, Rashi. And the story references the style of commentary that we associate with Rashi and with Rashbam, and curiously enough, with Ibn Ezra. So the idea of Rashi creating a commentary on the Torah was that those who read the Torah, who don't have the benefit of an explanation, and are not familiar with the basic understanding of the translation of the words, might be puzzled by the way some of these stories are expressed or some of the aspects of the Torah are expressed using the basic knowledge of Hebrew. Therefore, Rashi created a perush, a commentary on the Torah, which gives us a deeper understanding of the basic meaning of the text of the Torah. More often than not, he uses Chazal, more than 90% of the time, he uses Chazal. Occasionally he brings from other sources, for example, we know Rabbi Moshe Hadarshan was somebody who he either learnt with or from, and he brings other sources of information, but nine times out of ten, probably more, he uses Chazal, he uses Talmudic and Midrashic sources to elucidate, to help us understand the meaning of the words of the Torah. And he, generally speaking, sticks to the understanding that is most basic. That was his intention. The Rashbam, in this particular passage, which I've translated in our source sheet, um, it starts on page one and continues over page two. We're going to read it in a moment. The, um, the Rashbam, his grandson, takes him to task. And not just him, but Ibn Ezra as well. Ibn Ezra, who similarly wanted to stick as closely as possible to the translation and to the rational understanding of the words of the Torah, not uh, use Chazal as a crutch because we can't understand the meaning of the Torah, not try and create some uh, vast uh, amount of uh, puffery, of extra information that helps us understand the basic meaning of the text, but to stick as closely as possible to what the Torah is saying. If the Torah says this is what happened, then this is what happened, unless we have some compelling reason to say that it didn't happen in this way. Or if the Torah says that this is the way a mitzvah should be done, then unless we have some compelling reason to say differently, we want to stick to the meaning as closely as possible to the meaning of the Hebrew words as presented to us in the Torah. So we have here, and I've mentioned three, there are others, but I've mentioned three of the best known rational um, commentaries on the Torah. Rashi is number one, Ibn Ezra is number two, and Rashbam is number three. Now, we're all familiar because I've used uh, the commentary many times in my shir, with the Ramban. The Ramban has no such constraints. And if he's presented with a, um, let's put it this way, with a complexity in the text, if one sticks too closely to the translation, he immediately dismisses the 
literal translation and leaps to a, either a chazal or an explanation which doesn't necessarily fit in closely with the words. And for that reason, he very often takes Rashi to task and Ibn Ezra to task because he finds that their explanations are too rational and therefore, in certain situations which he identifies, make no sense. So we're going to get to the Ramban a little bit later, but first I want to read you this passage from Rashbam, which is, by the way, one of the most famous passages in his entire commentary on the Torah. The Rashbam says as follows, My dear friends, you need to understand and appreciate that despite everything our rabbis taught us, Scripture never forsakes its plain sense of meaning. Although, fundamentally, Torah comes to teach us and inform us via the use of hints, drawn from the plain sense of the text, narratives, laws and rules, and through elaborations of the text using the 32 principles of Rabbi Yezer, the son of Rabbi Yossi and through the 13 principles of Rabbi Ishmael, Nevertheless, says the Rashbam, you need to understand that it is the plain meaning of the text that you need to know first before you start going to any of the other methods by which you can understand what that text means. I'm going to give you a, a, a way of understanding it. You know, sometimes you go, and, uh, you go to an art gallery and you see modern art and it looks absolutely ridiculous. My question always is, when you see a piece of modern art that doesn't necessarily match with your understanding with what art should look like. My question always is, can that artist paint a depiction of a bowl of fruit on a table? Or can that artist paint a depiction, a portrait of a person sitting in front of them? Or are they just making fun of us and throwing paint onto a canvas? The Rashbam seems to be saying the exact same thing about Torah commentary. Unless you understand the basic meaning of the text of the Torah, don't come to me with your interesting ideas and explanations and elucidations, because if you don't understand the meaning of the text, all of that is, it's external, it's outside of the meaning. And yes, it may enhance our understanding of Judaism, of Jewish heritage, of Jewish history, and indeed of what the Torah is trying to tell us. But if you don't understand the meaning of the words of the Torah, you shouldn't be engaging in trying to understand it through this homiletic exercise. So he says that the, of course, the 32 principles of Rabbi Yezer ben Rabbi Yossi Aglili are very important. And so are the, uh, the 13 middos, the 13 principles of Rabbi Ishmael. However, they are only there to help us draw out meaning from the text once you understand the actual meaning of the text. So if you want to understand, for example, look at the Gemara, one of the 13 principles of, um, of Rabbi Ishmael is a Gezer shove. What's a Gezer shove? Gezer shove is when you have two identical words used in two separate passages, each of them about different things. But because you have this um, scriptural association 
as it were, literary association, you can use that association to learn a particular thing about one of the passages from something that you know about the other passage. That's the idea of, of Xereshove. But that's not pshat. The pshat is, the literal understanding is, what it says in either of those two passages. Do you understand that? Once you understand that, then you can go to the next stage of trying to understand it in a different way. In any event, to continue at the bottom of page one, the earlier sages, because of their piety, inclined towards the homiletic interpretations, which are very important. The Rashbam admits, he says that they are very, very important. But because of this, he adds, they were not familiar with the plain meaning of scripture. In other words, says the Rashbam, he has some doubt as to whether some of the commentaries which we are familiar with, he doesn't mention who he's talking about, although later on he takes on the Ibn Ezra, he wonders whether they really understand the plain meaning of the Torah. So if we, if we turn to page two, if we turn to page two, he continues. Hold on a second. So on page two, he says as follows. As the sages said, do not make your children engage too much in plain scripture. And they also said, and this is the Gemara Baba Metziah Daflamad Gimel, one who occupies himself with scripture alone is meritorious, but not overly so. But one who engages in Talmud, there is no greater measure of greatness than this. So he adds an excuse, as it were, two sources of, from Chazal themselves who encourage people to learn Midrash to use Midrashic methodology to understand the Torah. However, he says, as a result, they were not so familiar with the plain meaning of scriptural passages. And as it records in Maseches Shabbos tractate Shabbat, and this is a direct quote from the Gemara, I was 18 years old and had read the entire Talmud, and I did not know that scripture never forsakes its plain text. It's plain sense. It's plain meaning. In other words, by the way, I know people who I learnt with in yeshiva who are only familiar with the stories of Tanakh because those stories appear in the Gemara. But they've never actually learnt through Yeshaya, Yechezkel. They've never been through the actual in scriptural order, in chapter order, They've never been through Yeshua, Shoftim, Melochim. They've never been through it. They've never been through Nevi'im. They've never learnt Tehillim. There's 150 chapters in Tehillim. They've never been through Tehillim with the Radak. They've only ever seen Psukim of Tehillim if they happen to encounter them in Davening or if they're studying a Gemara and the Gemara quotes Tehillim in order to make a particular point about something that's being raised during the course of a discussion in the Talmud. Says the Rashbam, you are failing as a scholar of Torah, of Nevi'im, of Ketuvim, if you refuse to acknowledge that these things exist in their own right. You need to look at the text as it appears in the text, not as it appears in a medrash. And moreover, 
if the only way you access the text of these of these passages is through midrash you have failed yourself as a true jewish scholar of tanakh because the plain meaning of the text is the basis is the foundation of everything else and now comes the personal anecdote of the story that he had with his grandfather. And Rabbeinu Shlomo, Rashi, my maternal grandfather, he calls him the Eine Hagoyla, the eyes of the exile, who expounded on Torah, on prophets, on writings, set his mind to explaining the plain sense of scripture. His whole intention when he began writing Rashi on the Torah was to create a commentary that would assist people, that would be a gateway into the plain meaning of Torah for those who wish to study the text of the Torah. Turn the page back. I've actually underlined in the Hebrew, um, the Hebrew part of it on page one, what he says here, because it's so startling, as I said earlier, it's really very remarkable. Va'af ani Shemuel ben Rabmeya chas noizasal. However, I, Shmuel, this is the Rashbam speaking, the son of Meir, who was the son-in-law of Rashi, niskavachti, nisvakachti imoi ulefonov. I argued with him and in front of him about his parish. I demonstrated to him that he's not stuck to his own rules. And occasionally, and more than occasionally, he had drifted into using midrashic, homiletic interpretations of the text, which were not the plain meaning. And he admitted to me, if it would be possible for him, obviously this was his grandson, Rashi lived till the age of around 65. And he was obviously an older man by the time he had this debate with his grandson. And he says to his grandson, if it would be possible for me, if I had the time, if I wasn't such an old man, I would need to make new commentaries. I'd need to rewrite Rashi. According to the plain meaning of the text which is occurring to me every day as I go through Chumash, as I go through Navim, as I go through Ksuvim. In other words, when I originally wrote this parish, I'm imagining that Rashi wrote it in his 20s, his 30s, I don't know exactly how old he was, he had occasionally allowed himself the liberty of using Midrashic interpretations because the plain meaning of the text didn't lend itself to a basic understanding of what was going on. But he agreed with his grandson that that was a mistake and actually what he should have done is rewritten it once it was done but because things were coming to him all the time as he studied it rewritten it in such a way that those midrashic interpretations would have been sidelined marginalized and he would have used the plain meaning of the text as a way of accessing the text itself so rashi himself according to rashbam admits that the way he presented his commentary was not the perfection which he sought in himself and were he able to do it again he would have. By the way, the Rashbam uses this as his own personal motivational platform to present us with a commentary 
that is even more rational and more basic than the version that Rashi, his grandfather, gave us and the one which we most usually use. Let me continue. And now he, could, <coughs> he says, And now he says, I would like to go over something which some of the earlier commentaries have said to prove my point and to prove to you how wrong they were because they have used a homiletic interpretation. He's, by the way, referring to Ibn Ezra. <coughs> but he says they needn't have used that homiletic interpretation. Those rationalists, those plain text meaning type commentaries could have used a different type in the particular case that he mentions of commentary which would have been truer to the meaning of the words. Eile toldot Yaakov. This, by the way, is taken straight from the Ibn Ezra. What does it mean? These are the events and the occurrences that happened to Yaakov. Says Rashbam, this is total nonsense. That's not what Eile toldot Yaakov means and you don't need to explain it that way. Now, by the way, if you want to have a homiletic interpretation of the word toldot to mean stories, narratives, events, no problem. Use it for that purpose, but only once you understand the plain meaning of the text. Can you draw a bowl of fruit? Can you paint a bowl of fruit as an artist? Or you're straight away, you, you know, engaging in modern art. <coughs> for every el um, toldot in the Torah and in the Ketuvim is either about the individual's children or more often his grandchildren, as I explained in Parshat, Eile Toldot Noach. What does the word Toldot mean? It always means children, descendants. That's what it means. Moreover, in Parshat Bereshit it is written, Noach was 500 years old, and Noach had shame, Cham and Yafet. And after that it explains that the world sinned, but Noach found favor, Matzachen. And then after that it states, Eile Toldot Noach, says it and talks about his children's children, how he had three sons, and that God ordered him to bring them into the ark for 12 months, and upon their exit, sons were born to them after the flood. That's chapter 10. Okay, so even though it begins in chapter 6, it says, Ele toldot Noach, the story, um, as it were, develops into a description of Noah's children and grandchildren and descendants until they increased to 70 descendants who were the 70 nations, as it is written, and this is in Bereshit chapter 10, Pasuk 32, from these branched out, etc. So he's using Noah as the example. When it says, Ele toldot, it doesn't mean these are the stories. It is an introduction that doesn't just go on the immediate psukim that follow it, but it is an introduction that follows on for that chapter, the next chapter, and subsequent chapters as a way of including every mention of children and grandchildren as descendants that this is introduced by the word toldot. <coughs> In other words, the word toldot does not mean stories. And now skip to the last paragraph. I've, I've skipped a paragraph here on the bottom of page two. And now in our chapter, it, it says, it writes, Ele toldot Yaakov. What does that mean? Leading up to his grandchildren who were 70 in number. 
You see that the correlation between what Noah had. Noah had children that led up to 70 nations. Yaakov had children that led up to 70 descendants who went to Egypt. And how they were born. That's what this is about. How is that the case? So it begins by saying, Yosef ben Shana. That's how it starts. Why does it start that way? His brothers envied him. And as a result of the events that occurred, they sold him to slavery. Yehuda left his brothers, which is the beginning of 38, right? So this is chapter 37. The beginning of chapter 38, Yehuda leaves his brothers. And he had sons in Ksiv and Adulam. He had um, the three sons that he had. And then also Yosef was taken to Mitzrayim, which is the beginning of chapter 39. So all of this... The Eilet Toldot Yaakov is not an introduction to the Pasuk where it says Yosef ben Shvayesrei Shana. It's a, it should be followed by, as it were in English, you put a semicolon there, or maybe even a period. Eilet Toldot Yaakov is the title of everything that occurs between now and when the everyone is reunited, much later on when, Yosef, um, when Joseph brings them to Mitzrayim. Anyway, Manasseh and Ephraim were born in Egypt. And then Yosef sent for his father and his household until they numbered 17 total. By the way, 70 is an interesting number. I think I've spoken about it before because um, there's different calculations as to who the 70 were. And there were clearly more than 70 people who came with Yaakov Avinu to Mitzrayim. And it's possible that there are even more than 70 nations. The, word, the number 70 is an important number. It's a... Um, a number that connotes proliferation. That means you have turned from a family to a tribe to something more than that if you have, if your um, descendants number at least 70. So with Noach, it led to 70. Ele toldot Noach. With Yaakov, it led to 70. Ele toldot Yaakov. Says the Rashbam, you don't need to leap to some other version of the word toldot, which isn't the literal meaning of the word. What does the word toldot mean? Descendants, children. So don't give me an explanation that says stories, events, narratives. That's a wonderful homiletic interpretation, Ibn Ezra. However, you don't need to use that. First, understand the basic meaning. The basic meaning of the parashiyot in the Torah is when it says ele toldot, it means what it says which is children, grandchildren, descendants, through to 70. So the Rashbam dismisses the notion that you need to use homiletic interpretation as a way of understanding the Torah. Occasionally, and by the way, this is the way Rashi put together his perush, occasionally the homiletic interpretation is um, more reasonable sounding than the basic understanding of the words. It doesn't mean you shouldn't understand what the words mean. The words mean what they mean. They're put there for a reason. We need to understand their translation. We need to understand how they can make any sense. And then we can start using all the other methods by which we, to, we are to understand the Torah. Let's continue with the Ramban. So the Ramban tries to understand why it needs to mention Vayeshev Yaakov Be'eretz Megurei Aviv. You remember that word Megurei? Vayeshev 
Yashav, what does Yashav mean? Dwelt. It means you lived there. It's a permanent word. What does Megure mean? Megure means not permanent, temporary. Ger. Ki ger zaracha be'eretz lolahem. Says Ramban that Yaakov Avinu, Yaakov Avinu wanted to fulfill the prophecy by residing in the land of his father in a temporary way. He was familiar with the text of the Brit Bein He understood that ultimately his family were required to live in a land that wasn't theirs. Now, was the land of Canaan theirs? Be'eretz Megurei Aviv. Why does it say again Be'eretz Canaan? It's not yet Eretz Yisrael. It's not yet the land of Israel. At this stage, it's the land which we live in at the mercy of those who are in charge. As we saw with Avraham and the Bnei Chet, we saw that he needed to buy the land for the burial plot of his wife, Sarah, from the Hittite leader, from Ephron HaChiti. And where does Yaakov and Yitzchak, where do they live? They live in Eretz Canaan. Be'eretz Mugurei Aviv. So Yaakov Avinu understands that the reality is he lives Be'eretz Mugurei Aviv and he wishes to use that as the fulfillment of the prophecy that took place during the covenant with God between Abraham and God. V'shenit kayem bahem ki ger be'eretz lo lahem. That your Descendants, your children, will be strangers in a land that does not belong to them. Did it work? I'm afraid it didn't work. But it does explain what the pasuk means. Okay, we're taking a bit of a leap. We're using the word mugure in a word that, in a way that, um, that it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily lend itself to that meaning. However, the Ramban is using a homiletic explanation to help us understand the repetition in the Pasuk and the use of the word Mugure in the Pasuk. A Barbanel, however, has a completely different interpretation. And it's absolutely amazing that a Barbanel looks at this in a completely different way and it's absolutely beautiful. So I haven't translated this. It's source number five in your sheet. So earlier on, the Psukim already informed us that Yaakov Avinu returned to Mamre, Elone Mamre, to the place that's known as Kiryat Arba, which is Hebron, where Abraham and Yitzchak lived. What does that seem to indicate? I mean, we don't need to be a genius, you don't need to be Sherlock Holmes or Hercule Poirot to work this one out. What does it sound like? It sounds like that Yaakov returned to live there, right? That Yaakov went home. He went to Elone Mamre. Where did the family live? Where was the family residence? Elone Mamre. We know that from various places where we've seen it. That's where he returned. 
We don't see anywhere after that that he went out of that place, as we saw. Remember, we said, So we know that at some point, Yaakov left Be'er Shava and he went to Choran. We don't see that after he came back to Elione Mamre, to Kiret Arba, that he left, right? So you don't have to be a great genius to work out that if that's the case, that then that's where he remained. That's where he was. In which case, why do we need this pasuk, this introductory pasuk? We just learned this Ramban. I didn't actually include this piece when I read the Ramban. Because we heard a little earlier, this I mentioned before, that Esav went to another land and he took himself a permanent place of residence. So whereas Esav took himself a permanent place of residence, he staked out his claim to a land in Harseir called Edom, Yaakov didn't do that. He lived where he lived, but he was a Mugurei Aviv. He was a Ger. Why? And then the Ramban goes on to say what I said earlier. Because he wanted to fulfill the prophecy that uh, your children will be strangers in a land that does not belong to them. However, says the Abar Benel, the Lidvarav, Hayara Ushayomar Hakatuv Vayagar Yaakov. In which case, why does it say Vayeshev Yaakov? It's the wrong word. It's the wrong verb. The verb should have been a ger verb. Be'eretz mugurei aviv vayagar Yaakov. He resided there temporarily. Why? Because of whatever reason the, the Ramban gave. But that's not what it says. And we know ki Yitzchak lo nikra ger kivin shesham nolad. We also know that Yitzchak wasn't called a ger because he was born there. You're only ever called a ger if you're a foreigner. And by the way, if somebody calls you a ger and you're not a foreigner, you're born in that country, then they're prejudiced against you. They have no right to call you a ger. Once you live in a country and you are a permanent resident there, you were born there, you know, you've, nobody has any right to call you a ger. So the whole idea that Yaakov was a ger is nonsensical. How can you be a ger in the country in which you were born, in which you lived for most of your life? Yes, he was away for a few years, but he came back. He went back to the place not only where his father lived, but where his grandfather had lived. That's not called a ger. Okay? V'sham yashav kol yamav. That's where Yitzchak, and by the way, Avraham, after he came at the age of 75, lived there for the rest of his life. And Yitzchak lived there his entire life. V'ager hu habam eretz acheret. What's a ger? Somebody who's a foreigner, an immigrant, who comes from another country, never learns a language, he never really acculturates himself to that place. That's not Yaakov. So Abarbanel dismisses Ramban's entire idea that this was Yaakov trying to fulfill his destiny and the destiny of his family, the Ramban hasn't got it right. So what's the Barbanel, Abarbanel's explanation? We need to introduce what I'm about to say by understanding 
the two words which seem to be in conflict with each other at the beginning of the parsha. There's two words, Vayeshev. What does Vayeshev mean? We've said it a few times. He lived permanently. What does Megure seem to indicate? Temporary residence. The Rambam, the Rambam says, what does, what does the word yeshiva mean? When you're sitting down, when you're dwelling, when you reside, there's an, there's an air of permanence, of solidity to it, right? You live in a place, that's where you are, that's where you belong. That's what the word vayeshev means. The word mugure doesn't just mean, you know, that's the way we normally understood, understand the word mugure. It's most closely associated with the word ger, which is stranger, outsider, immigrant. You don't belong here. Why? You came from another place. That's the word mugure has this air of temporariness about it. But that's not the only, as I said last week in my share, Hebrew, classical Hebrew, biblical Hebrew, has only 8,000 root words. And many of them are platforms for multiple meanings. So the word ger actually doesn't only mean stranger. Now, he, what he's, he's trying to offer an excuse for the Ramban, who used it for the most obvious meaning. But that's not the only meaning of the word megure. Um... You know what else it means? Fear, fright, insecurity. Come on, he quotes, by the way, a few more psukim. I've only left two in. That's what the pasuk says. Another one. Mikol megurotai hitzilani. You've saved me from all the people who threaten me. The word Megure means a threat. It means threatened. It means insecurity. So here it doesn't necessarily mean Ger, as the Ramban seems to indicate. And by the way, which is the basic understanding of it, it could mean something else. And by the way, he says there's another meaning. The Gamkein who lashon tagaruk tata, bad things happening. Things which shouldn't happen, happen. Vayomer Hashem Eli. So this is God speaking to Moshe Rabbeinu before they attack Moab in Dvarim. Vayomer Hashem Eli. Al tatsar et Moab ve'al garbam. Don't bother Moab. Don't attack them. Don't do bad things to them. Don't let bad things happen to them as a result of you. That doesn't mean ger, does it? It doesn't mean that they're strangers. I mean, talking about the Moabites living in Moab. Don't bother them. Leave them alone. Don't afflict them with a war. The word ger, this root word ger, has three meanings. But perhaps it's the latter two, the second one and the third one, 
which are most appropriate in terms of trying to understand the Pasuk, Vayeshev Yaakov Be'eretz Megure Oviv, says Abarbanel. And now he comes up with a fascinating understanding, which I have to say makes a lot of sense. And he bases himself on a Midrash, although as he says at the end, the little piece at the end is, he says, I've taken this Midrash much further and I've used this idea in a different way. I've taken it in a different direction. Listen. What does it mean that Yaakov settled in the land that's known as Megure Aviv? Ratzalomar Pachad Yitzchak Aviv Ben Yaakov Esav Ukutatam. Do you know what it means? It means that he settled into the same circumstances that affected and afflicted his father. What was his father's state of being throughout his time that he lived in this place, wherever it was, Be'eretz Canaan? He was always frightened. What was he frightened of? I've got two sons who hate each other. Something bad is going to happen. This was a, it was kind of like father, like son. What happened to Yitzchak when he lived in this place is what happened to Yaakov when he lived in this place. The same things, the problems that affected Yitzchak, that he was worried about how the, the conflict between his sons would unfold, is the same thing that afflicted Yaakov that he didn't know how the conflict between his sons would unfold. In the same way that his father Yitzchak, in his old age, suffered the problems and the concerns of the differences between Esav and Yaakov, Ken Yaakov Saval Ktatat Umistamat Banav, he also suffered exactly the same problem. And he continues, And in the same way that Yitzchak suffered because he loved one of his children more than he loved the other, he loved Esav, as it says in the Pasuk, Ahavet Esav. So too, Yaakov suffered, says the Abarbanel, Kacha Yaakov hayas tzibab bimrivat banav b'mash ahav et Yosef. Do you know why the conflict erupted? The catalyst was that he loved one child more than the others. He fell into the same groove as his father. His father lived in Canaan, Vayeshev, Be'eretz Canaan, but it was Megure Aviv, the problems the issues, the matters that affected his father affected him as well. Ukumoshe Yitzchaki continues, and just like Yitzchak, Saval Predat Yaakov Mimenu Esrim Shana Bevet Lavan, Ushtaim Shanim Bedrachim Kemoshe Biarti. And in the same way that Yitzchak suffered the loss of his child Yaakov, who had to run away and was for 20 years in the house of Lavan and two years on a journey. And he says, as he explained, Ken Yaakov Sabal Predat Yosef Mimenu Chafet Shana. Similarly, Yaakov had to suffer 
the departure of his child, the loss of his child, not being with him. Joseph, his child, was away from him for 22 years. And he continues, And the same way that Yaakov, he left from the house of his father, he had nothing, he was poor, he was destitute. As it says in the Pasuk, I just went over the Jordan with my stick, with my staff. And he was sold into slavery, as it were, because he had to work for his father-in-law. He was totally committed um, working for his father-in-law, working off the debt. And nevertheless, he grew in in every possible way, and he became extremely wealthy. Similarly, um, so too happened with Yosef. Uh, where am I? Similarly, Joseph went to Egypt as a slave, with nothing. He was totally devoid of any material possessions, ended up being the great Joseph, the, the uh, um, leader of Egypt. And so too, so the, in the same way that Isaac, finally, the end of his days, saw Esav and Yaakov reconcile, he similarly saw, Yaakov saw, the end of his life, Joseph and his brothers reconciled and back loving each other as it were, as brothers should. And just as Isaac died in an old age and his sons buried him, they were together, so you see that the whole idea of this pasuk, according to Abarbanel, is Vayeshev Yaakov Be'eretz Mugure Aviv. Do you know what it means? Be'eretz Mugure Aviv is not that he lived in the land in the same way that his father lived in a sort of a non-permanent way, in a temporary way. What the pasuk wants to tell you is that he followed in his father's footsteps and went through the same trials and tribulations that his father endured. Those were the same trials and tribulations that Jacob endured. And as I said, this final little paragraph is him telling us that the Midrash is offering, offers a similar comparison, although his comparison is, although the Midrash compares Joseph to Jacob, he says, I've taken this idea further and I've compared Jacob to Isaac. Now, just to end off, I wanted I want to just um, introduce the Gemara about Hanukkah, and um, and we're going to see that Reb Nachman of Breslov connects Al Parsha to Hanukkah. So the Gemara says it's a famous Gemara. Ton Rabbanon, mitzvah Hanukkah ner ishu beisoy. What's the mitzvah of Hanukkah? The mitzvah of Hanukkah is that each household should have light. Ner ish ubeisoy. So if you, the real way of doing Hanukkah, if you had to do it that way, is you light one candle each night for everybody in the household. Vamahadrin, ner lekol echod ve'echod. 
What is the Mahadrin, the better way of doing it? Each person should have a menorah. Vamahadrin mina Mahadrin, but by the way, each menorah would have one light, not many lights. Vamahadrin mina Mahadrin, the best of the best. Beit Shammai Omrim, Yom Rishon Madlik Shmona, Mikan Ve'elach, Pochet Vaholech. So Beit Shammai says you start off night one with eight lights, night two with seven. Night three with six, etc., etc., until the final night of Hanukkah, you light one. However, Beit Hillel Omrim, Yom Rishon Madlik Echad, this is the way we do it because we paskin like Beit Hillel. We light one on the first night. Mikan Ve'elech, Mosif Ve'elech. From there on, you increase by one each night until the eighth night of Hanukkah, you're lighting eight. Says Rab Nachman of Breslev. Vine Inyan Machloket Beit Shamai Beit Hillel, Hanal. You know what this machloket is about? He has a fascinating insight into the mindset of Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel. What's the most famous story of Beit Shammai, of Shammai and Hillel? You remember the convert who comes to Shammai and then comes to Hillel? And what does Shammai say? He says, I want to, you teach me the Torah, I want to be on one foot. He stands on one foot. Shammai says, are you crazy? Kicks him out of the house. He goes, to, um, he goes to Hillel, he says, teach me the whole Torah on one foot. And Hillel smiles at him, probably pats him on the cheek, and he says to him, never do to your friend that which you don't want to have done to yourself. The rest is commentary. That's what Hillel says. You see that there is a philosophical difference between Shammai and Hillel. Shammai is an elitist. Unless you're doing the whole thing, what's the point? Hillel's not an elitist. He's always willing to give somebody something small and you can grow on from there. Says Rav Nachman of Breslov, this dispute about how to light the menorah, Mahadrin Mina Mahadrin, on the Hanukkah, is a, reflex, a reflection of the philosophies of the different schools, Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel. She'en ra'oi min hadin lekorvan she'beit Shammai omrim, Beit Shammai's opinion is, keep them away. Don't let them be too close. You reduce your contact with them. The holier you are, the less you have to do with them. You start off strong and then those people will drift away. They'll reduce their contact with you. You increase and get more and more and more. It starts off small. Start off on one foot and you tell him some idea. And from there you grow. The rest as it is, as he says, is commentary. The whole idea is that you start, you need to, if you are somebody who's a Shomer Torah and Mitzvot, you keep everything. You come across somebody who has no contact, as it were, with the Mitzvah world, with the Torah world. And you want to bring, if you start off with full on every Chumrah of how to keep Shabbos, 
What are the chances that that person will ever grow, as it were, in their Yiddishkeit? What is the chance? Zero. So you need to reduce, you need to kind of, by the way, this was the way Reb Nachman worked. Even though he was extremely great in his knowledge of Torah, he would sometimes play the fool and, uh, you know, engage in activities that you would never have imagined that such a great rabbi would engage in, in order to have proximity and contact with people who were much less than him. They say that in the last year of his life he lived, as we know, in Uman, because that's where he's buried. But he didn't stay in the home of the religious Jews of Uman. He stayed in the homes of the Maskilim of Uman, and he would play chess with them, and he would engage with them. He wanted to use his last precious months of life, he died of tuberculosis at the age of 38, to engage as much as possible with people who were much less than him, and to elevate them. The Hasidim he'd already worked with all those years that he was the Rebbe. Now he wanted to do as much as he could to elevate the souls, to elevate the levels of Judaism, of those who had a reduced level. You have to understand what the debate is about. It's exact, it's identical with the principles of the debate that takes place in every generation between the um, Tzadikim Shlemi means those who are truly righteous, whose idea and ideal is to bring as many people as they can close to God. What is the greatest protest that one always hears about people who engage with those who are less religious and less committed than them? You're going to contaminate yourself. It's muktza machmasmius, right? You're somehow, by associating with people who are much less than you, you are much less. That is the idea. And by the way, you're going to compromise your, the way you keep mitzvahs because you go to somebody's house, you might touch something, you might see something, you might drink or eat something. Something's going to happen, which means that your elevated level of observing Judaism is going to be compromised as a result of your association with such people. And by the way, the people who say it, says Rav Nachman, are themselves tzaddikim. They're not saying it because they're jealous. They're saying, out of, saying it out of genuine concern by being associated with people who are essentially sinners. You are guilty by association and you are contaminated by association. As a result of these protests, of these concerns, people begin to believe that they have become contaminated and that it's not possible to do it in a proper fashion. This is a debate that has occurred in every generation. Nothing has changed. Don't believe that this is only something that happened at the time of Hanukkah, or that it happens in our time and it never happened in any earlier area. You should know it, particularly nowadays, as we get closer to the Messianic era, this is an issue, this divide is an issue, that creates problems in the Jewish world. Shenitrabeha kategoria ben hatamidei chachamim maod. 
the disputes between great scholars has increased and got much worse over Yotera Rabbeinu Agadov Anoraza Tukal. And the author of this, who was a Talmud of Rav Nachman, says that the terrible protests against Rav Nachman of Breslov were all based on this issue. Because he dedicated his life to bring as many people as he could closer to Judaism and to the word of God so that they were more involved with their Jewish heritage and with what it meant to be Jewish. And now he connects it to Al Parsha. If you want to understand why the Shavatim disagreed and were upset with Yosef, it's based on this exact principle. Do you know who, who Yosef is? Yeah, it's the word. What does what does Beit Hillel say? Mosif Yosef, always increasing, day by day, one more piece, one more light, one more candle, something more, slowly but surely bringing back the word of God into a place where it has disappeared. That's why he's called Yosef. Mosif We shouldn't imagine that the Shivatim were bad or evil or sinners. No, they were all holy people. They were very great and righteous people. Their disagreement with him was, you can't be this way. You can't be a Yosef, a Mosif Holech. You have to be a, a Shammai. You've got to kick the people out. You've got to be a Pochet Holech. And that's what it means that Yaakov lived in the land of Megure Aviv. Do you know what Yaakov Avinu was doing? He was bringing people closer to God, converting them to monotheism. And that's why it says, Who are the children of Yaakov who did the same thing as him? By being Megayer Geirim, see another use of this word, Megure, not strangers in terms of them being foreigners, but Geirim, converts to the word of God. Be'eretz Megure Aviv, Ele Toldot Yaakov, Yosef. Much more than all the other brothers, Yosef took this message to heart and he became a follower of Jacob's path. He went in the path of his father, Jacob. His whole ideal was to bring people closer to the word of God. The idea of Hanukkah is to bring people closer to God. That's why we light the menorah at the window. We don't light it inside our house behind closed curtains. We light it at the window and each night we increase the light. We demonstrate that you can always do something more. Like Beit Hillel says, Mosif v'holech. You can take something from small beginnings and turn it into something bigger and slowly but surely into something that's truly big so that 
the people who are influenced by the message of Hanukkah won't simply be influenced by donuts and latkes, notwithstanding the fact that we all like them, but will be influenced by the spiritual message of Hanukkah, which is to come closer to God. We'll leave it here for today.